Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have here today. Help us, Lord, to remember as we are studying that in the end we're talking about eternal salvation where individuals are going to spend eternity, heaven, a real heaven or real hell, and that the difference is made in Christ. Help us to understand, Lord, that this whole process of salvation isn't multiple choice. It is your way or it is no way. It's your son or it's not at all. And help us, Lord, to be open to the work of your Holy Spirit that would teach us and drive these truths deep into our hearts. We pray for those here today that are not saved, Lord, that are trying to do it their way, that this would be the day you would set them free to trust in Christ alone, to know the joy of salvation by grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have entitled this message with a question, are you trying to be saved? And I would encourage you, if you know anybody in your life later, you can get the tape after. There, there would be people you could give this tape to. And I'll try to act proper enough that you wouldn't be ashamed to give it to them. Try to be decent along the way. D.L. Moody once said, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. And I like that because... In my life, I've heard promises that I thought, that's too good to be true. I just can't believe that. And when I come to look at salvation by grace alone, a salvation that's all of God, a salvation that involves no trying whatsoever, that seems to me too good to be true. Especially because I'm a human being and I, as you am incurably addicted to pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. I want some of the glory. I can do it. Let me do it. I can do it. We start saying that as little children. And we never really quit saying it. But when it comes to the matter of salvation, we have to end that forever, once and for all, in Christ. There is no trying to be saved. So I ask you up front, are you trying to be saved? If so, you need to listen very carefully to what Romans chapter 4 would say to you today. Paul in this passage is uh, using Abraham as the example of salvation by faith alone. And that is because he's really trying to reach the Jews who would not let go of all the rites and rituals and ceremonies they had in Judaism. For one thing, because God gave them to them. But you see, God gave them to them in a temporary sense, all of it was designed to point to Christ. And some of the details of a lot of these rituals and ceremonies had to do with just living a decent life as a nation. Never to save. Never. And when Jesus Christ came as the Messiah to the Jews, first to the Jews, the Bible says, then to the Gentiles, when he came to his own, and his own received him not. From that moment, Judaism given to them from God. From the, the moment Christ came, he came to replace all of that because those things were just a shadow pointing to him. The real thing was him. When he came unto his own, and his own received him not, Judaism at that point was put aside by God superseded by the real thing, Christ, that it pointed to. To hold on to Judaism at that point, 
is simply to have a religion now really without its essence. To take Christ out of Judaism is to render Judaism utterly useless because Judaism at its heart always looked to Christ if you look at it in the Bible. A Christless Judaism is a Judaism redefined by man and something other than what God gave. That's something every human being has to come to grips with, especially if you're concerned about Jewish friends or if you are one. There is no such thing, let me put it simple, as a Christless Judaism. No such thing. So that Simeon waiting in the temple, when they brought Mary and Joseph came in and they brought Jesus to be circumcised, Simeon stood there and began to rejoice and he said, I have waited, God has shown me that I would not die until I came to this moment and I have seen the salvation of Israel. His Judaism had at its center Jesus Christ. Never was Judaism ever Judaism without Christ. So to have him come unto his own and his own received him not and to go on in Judaism without Christ is a godless Judaism. A Christless Judaism is a godless Judaism. And in the end, totally ineffective for saving you. So we come to this passage and Paul writes all these things specifically to that end. And he has here the example of Abraham. He has the exclamation of David. He goes to Abraham because the the Jews looked to him as their great father. David because he was their great king. David specifically because his sin was so great with Bathsheba that he should have been taken and executed. The sin of murder, sin of adultery under the, the law of Moses required that the guilty party be executed. So David should have died. God gave him grace and he said, you shall not die. Your sin has been put away. And David afterwards, writing in the Psalms, just marveled that God could be so good as to just wipe out sin, as to put it away, and to be saved by faith alone to David was the greatest thing in all of life. Thus, Paul has pointed to him, and we looked at that in detail. Today we come to the essence of Abraham's faith, saving faith, and I want to look at a few of the things that are here and move to the end of the chapter in the process. And we find here that when you talk about Abraham's faith, it is not trying to be saved. There is nothing about anything Abraham did where he was trying to be saved. And if you are trying to be saved, and if I say to you today, are you a Christian? Are you going to heaven? I'm trying. That's the wrong answer. If you hold to that answer, and it's all you have, you can potentially lose heaven forever. Listen to me. If you say, I'm trying to be a Christian, or if you say, I'm trying to be the right kind of person to go to heaven, then your chances are very good of never going there. Until in your mind and your heart, trying is replaced by trusting in Christ alone, you will never be sure of going to heaven when you die. And you must understand that. And you must work it through. You've worked other things through in your life. you worked your way up the ladder at work. You've worked your way hard to get a new car, drive around with tinted windows so people could see you in it. You've worked on a lot of things in life. 
The greatest tragedy in all your life would be to neglect working through the issue of how is a man or woman really saved. And to leave it at just trying is to leave yourself lost. It is not trying to be saved. If you're trying to be saved, then you are ultimately, and you may have to think about this a while to admit it, you are ultimately leaning on your own righteousness, which basically comes about in two ways. The religious rites and ceremonies that you think are important enough to do, and the rules and regulations that you have gleaned from maybe the Bible or wherever, that you feel you need to live up to to be a good person, good enough for God to accept you. And those rules may have come to you through the tradition of men in, in the established church. But in the end, they're inadequate. If you're trusting in religious rites, then you're right where the, the Jews were here. And Paul looks at that with this whole matter of the right, R-I-T-E, of circumcision. Look at verse 9. He says, Does this blessedness then, salvation, come on the, un on the circumcised only? Is this only for Jews? Or upon the uncircumcised also? Is this salvation for everyone? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Paul's basically saying, so listen, as a Jew, when do you think Abraham was saved? When he was a Jew or before he was a Jew? Circumcision being the turning point. And the answer is before. Fourteen years before he ever had that covenant sign from God, he was saved by his faith. So now he takes anybody listening and reading all the way back to the greatest example of salvation in the Bible, Abraham's salvation by faith, the father of every person spiritually who will ever be saved in that sense, salvation by faith, takes us all back to Abraham, then goes back beyond any religious rite and ceremony he ever did under the guidance of God, back to the time when he just believed apart from any kind of rite or ceremony, and basically says, this is where we all must go. And you understand that when he says in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, basically, that he already had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe. So, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also, to either or. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision but also walk in the steps of the faith which Abraham our father had while he was still uncircumcised. One of the greatest problems in Paul's day was these people that wanted to mix religious rites and ceremonies with faith in Christ. And they were adamant about it. They would go along behind Paul. Paul would go along preaching the gospel, leading people to Christ. They would get gloriously saved and blessed. And then these people would come along behind and say, No, you're not really going to be saved and go to heaven unless you also do this and this. Specifically become circumcised and become a Jew effectively as well as believing in Christ. So now turning salvation into works plus faith. 
was the biggest problem he had. And the reason it was such a big problem is, like I said already, man is so incurably addicted to wanting to do his part. So that you go to the book of Galatians, you see it's mainly written to counteract that whole problem. Jews going around saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. You go to Acts 15, the whole chapter, it's the same problem he's fighting against. But you see, what I want you to understand today is that that was a long time ago. And that's not so much the issue now as globally, the overall problem is still there and bigger and worse. Because you see, now Christ isn't just preached in Jerusalem. It's gone beyond Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Salvation through Christ alone, by faith, trusting in Christ alone, not trying, trusting. And along behind the gospel has come in every place, no, you must add these works to Christ to be saved. I don't know of any place in the civilized world where you can go and not encounter this. Every nation I have traveled to, many nations in the world, the thing I find is, is you never, almost never, just bump into simple, Christ-centered, biblical Christianity. Baggage-free. Typically what you find is a number of things. You find two camps of Christianity, the really loose and wild ones that are totally unbiblical, but uh, think they have all the life. And how can you have the life without the Bible? It's, that's some kind of a weird conundrum, whatever a conundrum is. But <laughs> you either have the really loose, wild, unbiblical ones, because they never take time to study the Bible, they're too busy shouting, or you have the really biblical people that are really dead because they're too worried if they shout a little bit that they'll be unbiblical and wrong, and so they never shout or move or anything, and they just are in the Bible, and, and here's the wild ones, and here's the dead ones, and... In the middle is Jesus Christ and normal guys like fishermen converted and just walking with Jesus and telling their friends and getting a reputation uh, as those that turn the world upside down even though they're ignorant and unlearned men. Well, that's right in the middle, you see. That's just normality and normal life converted by Christ. But you always have these extremes. And what goes with the extremes then is the onlooking world is so dissatisfied with those two extremes. They don't want either dead or wild and crazy. They want normal. So they reject the extremes. And into the vacuum rushes all kinds of false doctrine and everything else. And then in third world countries you have ignorant masses. And what you find all over the world is a lot of distorted Christianity. There is uh, an old saying, Thomas Manton once said that if you look at a picture of fire, painted fire, he said, painted fire needs no fuel. And he said, a dead formal profession is easily kept up. All of that is to say, why do people gravitate toward this caricature of Christianity, this Christ mixed with all these traditions and ceremonies and so on? Why do they gravitate toward that? Well, the answer is because you can go through all those ceremonies and never, ever have your heart toward God. And that is exactly the religion that the Pharisees made out of Judaism. 
They turned it all into the outward. Jesus came and rebuked them all and turned it back toward the inward and they killed him because they didn't want to change. So you look around the world and you see that people gravitate toward that. George Herbert has well said that the devil divides the world between atheism and superstition. I remember getting on a bus in the Philippines and in this huge, looked like a huge doll to me. And I thought, oh, the bus driver likes a doll on the bus. <laughs> you know, bigger than Chatty Cathy even, just a big doll. You can tell my age now, huh? Only gray-haired people know what a Chatty Cathy doll is. And I looked at this huge doll, and I thought, what is this? So I asked the bus driver, I said, what is this doll? Why do you, why do you drive your bus with this old doll on here? Because it was old and very dusty. And the bus driver got all reverent and said, oh, this is the Madonna. I said, Madonna? She doesn't look like that. She's a rock star, man. She would never dress like that. <laughs> Madonna? No, the Madonna. This is the Queen of Heaven. Oh, the Queen of Heaven. Yes, this is Mary. Oh, Mary. Yes, this is how you get saved, right here. Blessed Mother Mary. She saves us. We pray to her. She saves us. I said, hello, what about her son? Who's her son? <laughs> well, he's not a doll. You see, and, and here's this deception. And everywhere I went, some here, we're on the trip. We, everywhere we went, we'd go in stores and here's this Madonna. It was a radical extreme version of Roman Catholicism that basically obliterated Jesus and just stuck Mary in there in his place and she saves. But you see, even Roman Catholicism, without being radical, has Mary stuck right up there next to Jesus. And to be born in Roman Catholicism is to be baptized in water at your birth. And to read, for example, now I'll quote a, a Catholic theologian, to read, for example, Ludwig Ott. You will read that part of the way you are saved, it's mandatory you are baptized as an infant to be saved, but that's only part of it. Then to go on you read you must be confirmed to the church, but that's only part of it. You go on to read that you must partake regularly of Holy Communion, the Eucharist, believing that the, the wafer and the juice, the body and the blood, literally become Christ's body, literally and that he is dying, sacrificing him, his life for you all over again right now every time you go to Mass. That's Catholic theology in their own books. And that water baptism as an infant, confirmation, doing that regularly, the Eucharist and the Mass, the Mass is Christ sacrificed again right now, that these things are mandatory to salvation. That's Catholic theology. You cannot be saved without that. And so many of the other things that go with it, you end up with about seven mandatory things in the Catholic Church to be saved and stuck in there and lost, basically, is Christ. And, and if your knee-jerk reaction right now is, you know, I hate you already. I, I, I didn't want to come, they made me, and now I sit here and I hate you. <laughs> well, please understand, I say this to you because I love you. And that maybe no one else has the nerve in, in your life to say this to you. And, you know, you can kill me after, but it'll be on a tape, so it'll keep going. So you can't stop it. But, but seriously, maybe no one has the nerve to tell you this. 
because they're family or whatever and they don't want to make waves. I'm quoting Catholic theology here, their own books. But these things are not in the Bible. So I say that what was a great problem in Paul's day with, with circumcision and that whole thing mingled with Christ is a global problem in our day of an even bigger proportion. Works and Christ. Ceremonies, rituals and Christ. Mary and Christ. To, to leave the Catholic Church now, go to Seventh-day Adventism. Keeping the Sabbath, which is Saturday, and Christ. Keeping the, the dietary laws and Christ. Well, now you're into the Mosaic Law all over again, like the people giving Paul trouble in his day. And the Mosaic Law was never given to the Gentiles ever. Ever. So, unless you were born a Jew, then you cannot take some hybrid of Judaism and Christ and say that you worship on the seventh day Saturday and that makes you right before God, you've now messed the whole thing up. And it isn't harmless. It's not harmless. It's dangerous. It is so dangerous that you put your trust in these other things other than Christ. Now what are you doing? You're trying. You're trying. You don't miss a Sabbath, Saturday. Sorry, but that was for the Jews. If you're going to keep the Sabbath, as a man, you better grow your sideburns all the way down, curl them. And your wife might not like that. And you better not eat pork. And that means you can't go to Carl's Jr., CJ's, we'll call it, just for the sake of time. And you can't order a sunrise sandwich with bacon because it's got pork. So you can't just say, well, I'll take the Sabbath and leave out the, the dietary pork thing. No, you be, you're going to have to take it all. Because if you don't keep the whole law, then you're condemned to hell forever. So you've got to take it all. You can't take any of it. You can't take a little part and stick it together and put it with Christ and call it Seventh-day Adventism. You can't. You can't. So am I saying there are no saved Christians in Seventh-day Adventism? I never said that. But I am saying they have taken a hodgepodge from the Bible and said this is what makes you right with God. That is a lie. The only thing that makes you right with God is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is it. There is no trying with all of this other. So this problem of rites, ceremonies, rituals, it is very great. It is very real. I, I just like to think of it like this. People can be inoculated basically against a personal relationship with Christ by small injections of these hybrid religions and the traditions of men to the point that you feel like you don't need Him. I mean, ask somebody who's been to Mass and they've taken the Eucharist, they've taken communion. Ask them if they are in Christ. The answer is going to be, of course I am. You bet I am. What do you think I was doing at Mass this morning? I partook of Him. I took Him into me. I am in Christ. Of course I am. But you see, if you're trusting in the Eucharist, and you're trusting in your baptism, and you're trusting in all these other things, and you don't know Christ personally by faith and trusting in Him alone, you're not in Christ. You're in a church going through rituals and ceremonies. And thus, that's why I say people can be inoculated against a personal saving relationship with Jesus by small injections of religion. It's dangerous. It's not just another choice. It's dangerous in an eternal fashion. 
Matthew Henry used to say, nothing is more destructive to Christianity than placing in it modes and forms and ceremonies that eat out the center. And the center is Christ. And you see, Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 4, is most qualified to write on this. Because he said in Galatians 1.14 that he advanced, he said, in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries in his own nation, being more exceedingly zealous, watch the terms, for the traditions of the fathers. And so he was the number one religious man in his nation. He didn't skip a rite, he didn't skip a ceremony, and he trusted in all of that for his salvation. And one day on the road to Damascus, unanticipated, Jesus revealed himself to him. And he said, I have to tell you, you've got it all wrong. This is a Danny Mon prayer phase, big time. You have it all wrong, fella. And as zealous as you are, you're going in the wrong direction. And he converted to Christ and left all of that religiosity, just dumped it. And in the end, this is his summary of all of his religious life before salvation in Christ by faith alone. He summed it all up looking back. He said in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I count all things behind me, loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, saying I have willingly let it all go, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Rubbish, new modern translation. I like the old King James. It says dung. Dung, a heaping pile of stinking dung. And of course, there's lots of words for that original word, which is not dung, you know, in the Greek. It doesn't say dung, eto, or something. It's, it's just excrement. What do you think of all the rites and ceremonies and candles and things you did in the past, Paul? You were number one. What do you think about all that? A heaping, stinking pile of dung. And what do you trust in now? the Son of God, my Savior, Almighty God, made man, who died for me. And that's it. That's it. And what a happy, powerful life he had after that change. Augustine came to this understanding. And he said, It is no advantage to be near the light if your eyes are closed. What good does it be to be religious? What good is it? So you go to church every time. You never skip, you know, and this is the argument back. Hey, don't hassle me about heaven or God. I always go to church. Do you love Him? I always go to church. Do you love Him? I always light a candle. Do you love Him? I, I do penance. Do you love Him? I have beads. Do you love Him? See, never yes. I love Him. He's everything to me, but this and that and the other. And Augustine himself went through that and he said, What advantage is it to get close to the light? But your eyes are still closed, you're unconverted, you don't see God, you don't know Him. What good is it? Religious rites, as the Jews look to circumcision, so many today who are trying are looking to the same thing. And then, just briefly, religious rules. As the Jews look to the law. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise that he would be heir of the world, looking down to Christ, bringing salvation to the whole world through his line, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
See, to the Jew at that time, you'd have to realize, long before there was a Mosaic law, there was Abraham. How could he keep the law? There was no law, you see? That just blows away their argument. Here stands his saved pillar of faith and salvation before Moses ever got the law. So how can you drag the law into this thing? You can't. But people do. And you know something? It just helps understand that the Mosaic Law was given to a nation of people who came out from Egypt as slaves stomping around in the mud making bricks without straw, taken to the desert almost overnight, parked at the bottom of a mountain, millions of them. They're suddenly a nation and they don't know anything. The design is they will be governed not by a king but by God, not by a president but by God, not by Congress but by God. So God parks them at the mountain and he gives the law. Sums it up in ten commandments, but all the details are some 613 things they were to live by as a people governed by God. That's kind of the intent of the law. And so in a time when medical science had not yet discovered that if you don't cook your pork chop long enough, you might get a bunch of bad parasites in your body from the porks because pigs are dirty. They're pigs. They're dirty. So they didn't know that. All they knew was how to make bricks without straw. So they, they're going to go live a life in a new land and God says, I want you to be healthy, so don't eat things like that. They didn't know that lobster crawl around on the bottom of the ocean, effectively the rats of the sea, which you may not know either when you pay a lot of money for it. They only eat dead and rotting things and crab crawl around slimy on the bottom of the ocean. They won't touch anything if it's not dead and rotting. Of course, you don't know that. You pay a lot of money for crab. Dress it up, call him Louie, you know, something like that. Crab Louie. Once I understood that when I worked with crab in Alaska and lobster, you couldn't pay me to eat one of those little sea rats. Not on your life. See, but they didn't know that. So God puts it in one of the 613 things. Don't eat those things. Don't eat those things. Don't eat those things. They didn't know. They didn't know if you eat a rabbit over and over, you'll starve to death. If you're, if you're stranded in the forest and you eat nothing but rabbit, you will starve to death. They didn't know these things. So God differentiated to give them a good, healthy diet. So here's God's people. Man, they're looking good. They're healthy. Here's God's people. They dress different than the tattooed, mangled, pierced Canaanites. Sorry if you're all mangled and pierced here today and tattooed. but <laughs> So God says, you will not make any mark. No tattoos. Don't poke yourself full of holes and, you know, all of this. I want you to look different. I want you to look clean. And when people get to know you, I want you to be able to introduce them to me. That's the point. So, you know... That's why God gave the law. Not to save them, but to give them a blessed life. You want a good parallel for the Christian life? We have the New Testament. Am I saved by reading the book of Ephesians and keeping everything in there? No. So the New Testament is given so I can be a happy Christian, live a holy life, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Quit cussing, you know, put away all filthy communication. He that stole, steal no more. It's just a good, decent life with God. So if you understand that about the law, it really clears it up kind of permanently in your mind. And you can get free from thinking you have to do anything to be saved except trust in Christ. So religious rights, religious rules. Robert M. Horn once said, Justification by faith alone 
is totally, don't miss this, totally against formal religion that would cause you to trust in rites and rules and ceremonies. It's against it. The two cannot abide in the same place. He said, God has no room for those who persist in relying on forms or ceremonies. J.C. Ryle summed it up totally. He said, men have only to go on hearing without believing, listening without repenting, going to church without going to Christ, and they will find themselves in hell. And you see, to just sum up behind J.C. Ryle there, that's what ceremonies and rites and rituals and traditions of men attached to Christ will do to you. You'll start trusting in all those things, and you'll go to church without going to Christ, and pretty soon in the end you find yourself in hell. That's why I say this is dangerous and it's serious and for people to stand back and say nothing about it because it's going to make a little waves in the family is criminal. Criminal. If a shepherd loves the flock and a wolf comes to devour, devour the flock, if he stands back and says, you know what, hey, I don't want to get involved here. I mean, I just want to kind of get along with wolves and sheep too. Is that loving? No, if he loves the flock and a wolf comes and he's a danger to the flock, he'll kill the wolf. It's the most loving thing he can do. If I stand here today and give you the impression that purgatory is an option, that you could like be religious, go to church now your whole life, file in and out occasionally Christmas, Easter, you know, make your appearance, and live like hell all the rest of the year. If, if I leave you with the impression purgatory is an option, live like hell, pay for it for a while later, Burn up a little bit in purgatory. It'll be hot. It'll be nasty. It'll be terrible. But eventually, you know, the jailer will come around wrangling his keys and he'll open your bars and he'll let you go out into heaven. If you believe that, you know where you're going to go? To hell forever. If you think you can fix it later, you're going to get to later and find out you can't fix it. Jesus will say, Depart from me, you that work iniquity, into everlasting, no way out and no end, torment. So anybody that leaves you with the impression that you can stack up seven or so things and get a little purgatory later if you mess up on the seven and work it out and go to heaven in the end, that is a damnable lie that can send you forever to hell with no way out. Those people ought to be arrested and sent right before the throne of God to give account to Him. It isn't a trifling matter. Are you trying to be saved? Then you probably will not be. You let that sink down into your ears. It is trusting to be saved. Trusting in Christ that will save you. Look at Romans 4.16. You see, faith brings you to the only sure salvation. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure. Notice, to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. You see that the promise might be sure. The bottom line of this is God knows what a sinner you are. He wanted to make a way of salvation that would be foolproof for even you, even you. So that you could know for sure 
Before you die, you're going to heaven for sure. The promise might be sure. And the only way to make it sure is to make it by faith in Christ alone, by the grace of God. You see, that concerning that kind of faith, there is nothing uncertain about faith in that sense. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I sin now. I'm less than perfect. But I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I've had high mountaintop years in Christ, and I've had low valleys where I just hated myself. But I'm going to heaven when I die because I trust in Him alone. Are you? That's the only way you're going to get there. Faith brings you into God's family. Faith trusts in the power of God rather than man's ability, and that's why it can be sure. Look at 17. Now we're about to shift and press toward the finish line. Romans 4.17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Abraham's faith is so tremendous because God said, the Messiah will come through you. But he didn't have any children. And he was 99 years old. And God's saying, you'll have children as the stars in multitude. But he's 100. And his wife is 90. Can't you see? God comes and says, you'll have more kids than the stars. Out. It's going to be great. And then God leaves. How long do you think it took him to think of that program, Sarah? I mean, doesn't he notice I'm 100 and you're 90? You've gone through the change of life, and I'm just an old man. I can't reproduce. But you see, the reason his faith is so wonderful is because he looked away from that to God. And I think when God came to him and says, look up at the stars, he says, you will have descendants as the multitude of the stars. I think he also looked at the stars and realized who made them. The one that calls things that are not as though they are. And then he spoke the stars into existence, the countless countless galaxies out there and then he looked back to his own body and he thought hey same one that put the stars in their place if he wants to give me a little jolt and tell me to have a baby and give my wife a jolt help us have a baby hey fine it's nothing to him he can do it it's it's going to happen and so he against the dead hope of having a child hoped in God who could make it so and then verse 19 not being weak in faith he did not consider his own body already dead toward having children or Sarah he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he was promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, that's the kind of faith this man had in God. He is given the righteousness of God by faith. And the great thing is that his faith was strengthened and sustained by God. Look at verse 20. It says his faith was strengthened, strengthened in faith. Do you realize, and I don't want you to miss this before we leave this chapter, we are told here that these things were written not just for Abraham, but for us, that we might partake of all this. I realize Abraham had this kind of faith because God was with him, and his faith was strengthened by God, being strengthened in faith. It is the nature of faith to start very, very, very small, and grow and grow and grow and grow because God is with you as one who trusts in Him by faith alone. Do you know what mustard seed faith is? You say, yeah, that's the stuff that moves mountains so I don't have it. 
right? I mean, how often are we condemned by the passage? If you had faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to yonder mountain, be removed and be removed. So we go find a mountain. And we get out there. Okay. Be removed. Nothing happens. And then we look at the little tiny mountains in our life we're trying to get rid of and nothing happens. And so we say, man, I don't even have faith like mustard seed. Mustard seed faith is faith that starts small. Mark says a mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds, but it grows to be a very large plant. Mustard seed faith that moves mountains is faith that starts small. And because God is with you, who's strengthening it as you grow as a Christian, gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. When Jesus found the disciples at the bottom of the mountain, they couldn't cast out the demon. And he said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could move mountains. He was saying, if you would have gone to prayer and sought God, God would have increased your faith. It would have grown bigger and stronger. And you could have cast the demon out. That's it. Abraham was strengthened in faith. God is going to grow your faith. You can live a life similar to him because the same God that made him the way he was wants to make you like that too. There's so much in this passage. But we're about to finish it. So here we go. He did not waver, believing God was able to perform. Verse 21, verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised... For our justification, saved by faith through grace alone. That's why this is here. I say to you, for the rest of your Christian life, you will be referring back to Romans chapter 4. For the rest of your Christian life. And there can be no greater study than this. I would encourage you, go back and read through it. Read through it especially with these things fresh in your mind. And then it will remain a clear chapter to you, and it will serve you well in the years to come. And I pray today, if you've been trusting in anything but Christ alone, that this would be the day you quit trying and start trusting and let that blessed relationship with God that is totally free become yours. And let that relationship with God begin today and carry it with you forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this great salvation, so rich and free. Lord, we pray for each person here today that we would all receive from you exactly what you want us to hear, that we would all do with this truth exactly what you want us to do, And that in the end, there would be great intimacy with you, great joy in you, great abundant life in you. Because we have looked at these things in your word this day. We ask it, Father, for your glory, for we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.